0: Welcome to the Vail Christian Church podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Morning. It's beautiful out today, right? I hope you're having a good weekend. The change in the weather is always uh, sort of shocking to me a little bit in Tucson, even though I know this is the way it is. It's awesome. This is the best time of the year. It's just when you move from all that heat and everything, you know, and it kind of shows up like this, you're like, wow, I forgot, right? (laughs) So great. I got up this morning early and man, so nice out. Like 55 degrees at five o'clock in the morning. That's really nice. I mean, you you know, you don't really need a jacket, you know, especially if you're uh, not from here, you don't need a jacket, right? (laughs) If you're from here, you're like, oh, i got to find my ice scraper just in case, you know, (laughs) my windshield's got ice on it. It's 55. Doesn't it freeze at 55? Oh, it's good though. It's really good. It's a beautiful time of year. I love this time of year. So um, guys, speaking of this time of year, we do a steak night in October. It'll be beautiful in the evening. So we want you to sign up, guys. Do it so we can plan. So get there online. It's so easy. Get out your phone. Just go and sign up and pay your uh, 12 bucks. It's really, really worth it. Okay? Uh, Invite somebody with you. Um, We give away really great stuff. You know that bacon that you get in the packages in the boxes and there's a whole refrigerator case you know at the supermarket it's got all kinds of different kind of bacon in it you know in all the packages we don't give away that kind of bacon no we give away the kind that you buy in the butcher shop you know that's thick like it's really good like when you cook it your family's like what is this this is amazing all right that's what we give away Plus, lots of other stuff It's going to be really great, all right? So sign up, guys, should be really good. There's plenty of other stuff going on. We had a great mission trip, uh, built a couple of homes. We'll see some video from that next week, but it seems like we had a really great time. And uh, just lots of good things going on, right? You could take your Bible out and uh, turn to Mark chapter 5, because that's where we are. If it's just a little uh, quick summary, you know, um, and up to this point. It's a really great series. The Gospel of Mark is laid out so great. But a lot of times people don't know it because they never read it for one thing, but they never read it all the way through, right? They never just take time to sit down and read the whole story so you can kind of back up and get a 30,000 foot view. Scripture is so important to do that sometimes. If If you're not like that, then you're gonna be this person that... Goes and sees a movie, but you've read the book, right? You've read the book, and you're like, the the movie does nothing like the book. Okay, so you're going to be one of those people that just watches the movies and never reads the book, and then and not know, all right, not know that 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 you know, as good as people are at telling you what's in there and helping you connect with it. I'm telling you, unless you do it for yourself, it's like just going and seeing the movie. It's nothing. The movie is nothing like the book, all right? So take time to read through Gospels in particular. Just sit down in one sitting. You can do it like, oh my gosh, you know, I'd have to read for two hours. that would be terrible. Lynn and I watched Star Wars uh, on DVD thing uh, this weekend, and it was like two hours. You know, it was really great. It's really great, but it is nothing like the book, by the way. Most of you haven't read the book, so see, you don't know, all right? So um, anyway, I don't know why I said that. Who cares about Star Wars? Let's talk about the Gospel of Mark, okay? I just want to motivate you to open up your Bible and read it for yourself. And uh, too many Christ followers, too many churches are unestablished because they don't spend enough time. Teenagers? Teenagers? Trey's taking you through the whole Bible this year. I hope you're doing it. I hope you're doing it. I hope you don't show up on, you know, your small group and they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't, I had soccer. I couldn't do it or too much math or homework or whatever, right? Do your homework, but read the scriptures, okay? You don't want to be ignorant people later, you know? It's really bad, ignorant people that don't know the scriptures. You're sitting in the front row, so I got a feeling either somebody made you or you're interested, Okay? <laughs> Right? So who's laughing over there? Yeah. That was kind of a snarky laugh. That was good. Okay, so Mark, he 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 starts his gospel just about the time Jesus starts a revolution, right? He goes from baptism to the synagogue, he turns everything upside down for people, you know, people like, oh, this guy, I've never seen anybody teach like this. And then he, inter- you know, he does miracles, he heals people, he takes it into a home. The guys that he calls to himself to follow him, oh man, you don't, you don't hang out with those kind of guys. I mean, he changes everything, he aggravates everybody because he, he starts a revolution. He turns everything that people are expecting upside down. I mean, Israel wants their, their, you know, their national identity to be preserved. They, 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 they want Messiah to be a warrior. They want him to come in with a sword and set things straight. And they're expecting that somehow. Everybody's been sort of convinced this is the way it's going to go. You want to know why? Because it's like they just watched the movie and they didn't read it. Okay, the, the, the Old Testament prophecies laid it out pretty well. But eventually people began to you know, skew the story and not connect with the story um, and they just, they're just missing it. And then so when he does arrive, they, they don't even recognize him half the time. And the way he brings this revolution, the way he introduces people to the kingdom of God, man, that makes people uptight, okay? So people are in a couple of camps. People are in a couple of camps. So um, Jesus does some things to address that. He begins to teach him parables. Parables are cryptic for a reason. He keeps those, uh, those that are opposed to him, they can see, but they don't see, right? That's why he teaches with the parables so that those that embrace the Savior, that embrace Messiah, that, that love Jesus, that, that, that their hearts and minds are open, those people get it. And, they, and, and, the, and the kingdom is revealed and his teaching is revealed. So he does this for his disciples, And for those who embrace Jesus and he does that for those who are in opposition because it holds them off long enough, you know, so that he's not crucified, that he doesn't die too soon. Doesn't that sound crazy? But that's what he's doing as he introduces the kingdom, as he introduces himself as Messiah. This is what's happening. So now we've gone through the parables and, and, um, and those teachings, and it takes time to get your arms around all those things. But now, as the rest of this story unfolds, you'll be able to look back at the parables and go, uh-oh, right? Last week, we saw Jesus had gone to the other side of Galilee, okay? To the east side, into Gentile territory, all right? And boy, he wasn't received, right, too well. The scriptures uh, scriptures, uh, depict something this week because he's come back to the west side again. Let's read Mark chapter five, starting in verse 21. Let's see this story and then um, we'll paint some more pictures through Mark's lens, it's really great. Starting in verse 21, Mark chapter five, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat, so that means he's gone back in a boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And he was, uh, uh, and, and he was by the seat. <clears throat> then one of the synagogue rulers, you remember how he just kind of really shook things up with the synagogue, how the synagogue worked and people teaching and rabbis and that whole thing. Showed you pictures of the synagogue. Well, one of the synagogue, right, rulers named Jairus. He came up and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. I mean, this is Unusual. He asked him urgent, urgently, My little daughter is near death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed all around him. Now, a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. I would underline 12 years. You want to go back up to the top of the story. His daughter, you know, I'd underline daughter. So twelve years and daughter. That's those are kind of keywords. You'll find out why. So she'd been suffering for from a hemorrhage for twelve years. She had endured a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. <clears throat> She kept saying, if I only touch his clothes, I'll be healed. At once the bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus knew at once that power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd. He said, who touched my clothes? This is a really crazy scene, actually. Verse 31, his disciples said, you see the crowd, you know, pressing against you. And you say, who touched me? You know, they're acting like, are you kidding me? Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Then the woman with fear and trembling, says she's afraid and there's a reason for that, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, so there's daughter again, underline that, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue ruler's house. So this is Jairus' house. Your daughter, there's that word daughter again, has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Jesus, of course, this is awesome, paying no attention to what was said, told the synagogue ruler, do not be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue ruler where, and Mark just keeps saying synagogue ruler. He's pointing this out. That's a significant thing, right? So they came to his house where he saw a noisy confusion and people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, why are you distressing and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep, And they began to make fun of him. Man, you got a lot of nerve making fun of Jesus. I mean, man. I mean, they don't realize it, but that's huge. But he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and his own companions and he went in to the room where the child was. Then gently taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, come which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And the girl got up at once and began to walk around. She was 12 years old, so there's that 12 again. I'd underline that. That's commentary, but she's 12. They were completely astonished at this. Who wouldn't be? He strictly ordered that no one should know about this. I mean, he keeps doing that. And then he says something crazy. He told them to give her something to eat. (laughs) <laughs> we'll find out why he did that. This is great though. Now look, the scriptures depict all of us as needy. They just do. All right? For something, they, they depict that we're needy for something that we cannot manufacture. We're always trying to manufacture things that, uh, that we need. But the scriptures create a picture that we need something that we can't do anything about, that we can't create. Whether we realize it or not, we are hungry and thirsty desperately for spiritual food and drink. We're hungry for the body and the blood of Christ, whether you realize it or not, okay? It helps to be desperate or at least to realize that you're desperate. Desperation Um, produces something in us. And in Mark chapter five, in this story, it features two desperate individuals. And this is key. This is significant. An unclean woman and a distraught or desperate father. Both of them eventually bow to the ground. I don't know if you realize that. They both bow to the ground in front of Jesus. They bow at his feet. And their stories tell us what to do when we're desperate, we're gonna draw that truth out of the text. The three passages in Mark, when you, when you go back up, all right, and from Mark 35 to, to, to chapter five, verse 43, these th- there's, there's three stories in there that feature death. That's significant. In Mark chapter four, verse 30 th- 35 through 41, Jesus calmed a raging sea and he rescued his, fo- uh, his followers. They thought they were gonna die. Okay? <clears throat> in uh, in Mark chapter 5, the last week's message, in 20 verses, the first 20 verses, Jesus liberates a man who lived among the dead. And now in this story, he looks fully into the face and, and, and into the face of death and he does some significant things and, and a lot of things come together right here. Okay? Now, um, what happens here is, is that after Jesus' brief trip into the Gentile country on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, with his disciples, he returns to more familiar Jewish turf on the western shore. And here's just a few pictures, all right, from, from afar. This is modern day Israel. I just thought it'd be kind of cool to, to, uh, to look through this kind of chasm right there, and you can see the western shore and a lot of the agriculture there. Um, just keep going, Dennis. You know, you can see all kinds of things uh, from this hillside. I thought it was just a kind of a cool view, and uh, th- this is what's on the western shore. In this last picture, you can just see, um, <clears throat> this is where Jesus has been a lot, that white, the, the synagogue that we keep talking about. It's down there, right? The Bay of parables or sower's bay it's all right there it's a really beautiful area and Jesus spent a lot of time he's called his um, disciples from this side so this is back where he's at right where lots and lots of people are following him around right okay the gentiles in the in the east side they ask him to leave the jews in the west are swarming him okay So despite his popularity, Jesus has not made any friends among Jewish leaders because of his revolutionary vision of the kingdom. Jewish leaders are opposing him. So if you're a Jewish leader like Jairus, that's significant if you're seeking this guy out, okay? It's worth noting that a synagogue official, in particular, a synagogue official like Jairus, you'd be risking your position by just associating with Jesus, But Jairus is desperate, right? He's totally desperate. His daughter is near death. And um, he's heard of Jesus' healing powers, which were occasionally unleashed by touch. You go back to Mark chapter one, and you can see that by bowing down before Jesus, Jairus literally described as a ruler, right? Recognizes a greater ruler. Jesus goes with Jairus, eventually intending to lay hands on the girl and heal, heal her. But Mark, he breaks off right here in the story of Jairus to give us a lengthy, lengthy description of a woman who had suffered from hemorrhaging for 12 years, the unclean woman. So that's where we are, right? Right? <clears throat> So her condition has rendered her perpetually unclean. All you got to do is read through uh, the Old Testament scriptures in Leviticus chapter 15. You can see all this, right? She's unfit for worship in the synagogue over which Jairus presided. And everyone she touches becomes unclean. This is the Mosaic law. So unlike Jairus, who occupied a prominent place in the world, this woman lives on the margins or the edge, the outskirts of society. So Mark creates a picture of the woman who is desperate. She spent her life savings on doctors and and, and her condition only gets worse. Mark also pictures her in a way like Israel, okay? So you gotta see these pictures. Her 12-year affliction corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel, creating a picture of Israel. Israel spent all that that it had on other gods, endured so much, and it hasn't helped at all, but in fact, Israel has grown worse, you could say. So Mark's description of the, uh, the woman here echoes the prophet Isaiah's description of Israel. So you go back to the prophet Isaiah, and this is what he says. In Isaiah 64, we are all like one who is unclean. All our so-called righteous acts are like a menstrual rag in your sight. I know, really descriptive, right? We all wither like a leaf. Our sins carry us away like the wind. No one invokes your name or makes an effort to take hold of you for you have rejected us and handed us over to our own sins. It's a big deal when you go back and recognize that a lot of Isaiah's prophecies, 600 years before Jesus for Messiah arrives on the scene, and this is what he's saying. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable how it connects to this story. The picture of Israel is different from the woman only because this is what a desperate Israel should do. A desperate Israel should take a hold of Messiah so that... She might be healed, but Israel's not doing that necessarily. So get back to the story. Despite their differences, Jairus and the woman are depicted in similar ways. Both of them come up to Jesus. Both are depicted as understanding what he's capable of. Jairus sees Jesus. The woman heard about Jesus. Both speak of the potential saving touch of Jesus. Jairus wants, to touch his, uh, wants Jesus to touch his daughter so that she might literally be saved. The woman wants to touch Jesus so that she might literally be saved. Just as Jairus risked his position by associating with Jesus... The woman risks being exposed by touching him, which according to the law, the Mosaic law makes him, that'll make Jesus unclean. Both are desperate. Mark wants us to see that Jairus and the woman have a lot in common. It's exactly what he's intended to do. Now, keep going. After touching the cloak of Jesus, the woman knows that she's been healed. God has healed the woman. The stoppage of the woman's flow of blood, it foreshadows the upper room where the Lord's Supper takes place. You remember that, right? Where Jesus tells his disciples that the wine of the Passover represents his blood, which will be poured out for many. So the son of God whose blood will flow so that many will be saved, stops the flow of blood coming from a woman who wanted literally to be saved. And the power to heal goes out of Jesus. His power to heal surpasses the woman The woman's power to corrupt. She, she, you know, if you touch somebody, you're corrupt. In contrast to the Mosaic law, which is understood uncleanliness to have a greater power. Just go back to Haggai chapter two and read about all this. The revolution now, the way of Jesus, which intensifies uh, holiness, has revolutionized the old way of the Mosaic law. So Jesus knows knows that the power... um, to heal has gone out of him. That's awesome. And he stops an effort to identify the person who touched him, no doubt. Think about this at the same time. This has got to stress out Jairus. He's got to stress him out. He's a desperate father because every second feels like a lifetime right now because his daughter is dying. And it's if, this is what happens. An ambulance driver on the way to save a life stops and gives attention to somebody with a sprained ankle. That's the way Jairus is thinking. So many people in the crowd are pressing in against Jesus. That's the scene you can imagine. His disciples, unaware that anybody's been healed, they decide that Jesus' desire to identify somebody who had touched him, it's both pointless, maybe even ridiculous, and you got to be kidding me, this is hopeless. I mean, how are we supposed to find this person? All right? So Jesus looks around to see the woman, the woman in spite of fearing the potential repercussions for touching someone in her unclean condition. Can you imagine living in the time where if, if this is your condition and you touch somebody else, you're like just the plague. Not only that, and then you, create, you make me unclean. I mean, this is awful. She identifies herself though. She's risking a lot right here. Like Jairus, she falls on her face in front of Jesus. She also literally tells Jesus all the truth. That's awesome. Earlier in Mark, all right, earlier Mark in, the, in this story, he noted that she had spent all she had on doctors who couldn't help her. She unburdens herself, right? She just confesses it all out there. And and um and Mark, in, in, in this brilliant way of recording this, all right, he unites the story again with Jairus, whose daughter was sick. She, uh, Jesus commends this woman's faith, correcting any notion that she uh, had about the involvement of magic. This isn't magic, all right, because he's talking about faith. Faith in the gospel is the broadest sense that connects us in its broadest sense, connects us to belief. Faith and belief. And belief connects us to God who's working in Jesus right here. And Jesus blesses her in order to complete her restoration. He blesses her. He heals her. And in this whole blessing, he he assures her that it's not temporary, but it's permanent. He says, be healed of your disease in healing her. He assures her. Jesus restores her to the community from which she had been excluded. When Jesus sees the woman who was afraid of being seen, this is important right here. What does he see? What does he see? She's afraid of being seen. What does Jesus see? He sees an outcast. No, he sees a daughter. He sees a daughter. He doesn't see her filth. He sees her faith. A lot of times when we come to church, when we face Jesus like this, people are, are, are so afraid of what everybody is thinking. They're so afraid of what they think people are seeing. Look what Jesus sees. This is important to note. Jesus sees her as a daughter and he sees her faith. He doesn't see all this other stuff. That's pretty amazing right here. Now, I think all of us can identify, at least in part, it's just that some piece of us can identify with the unclean woman. If you suffer silently in isolation, you may identify with her in a special way, right? Maybe because of what you've done, you feel isolated. Maybe because of what's been done to you, you feel isolated. Maybe because of relational challenges, you feel a little bit dirty uh, or even unfit for worship. You feel that you cause people trouble more often than you bring a a blessing or something good. It feels as if some people keep their distance from you. Your condition seems to place you outside of things. Lots of people that are covered up with and in any kind of addiction feel like this. You Feel guilt, you feel shame. You know that your addiction imposes and, and, and affects others, so, oh, we hide it. We don't want people to know. We spend our resources time and money, trying to make ourselves presentable, or just to dull the pain. And you haven't been helped at all. Maybe you've even gotten worse. See, you can identify in some small way with this unclean woman, right? Meanwhile, a desperate father, a distraught father, waits under stress. If the woman waited 12 years, Jairus waits for a few minutes, and it feels like a lifetime. Look at the distraught father for a minute. Jesus is still speaking to this daughter, right? News reaches the synagogue official concerning his daughter. The girls died. Those people that are delivering the news, they don't seem very sensitive and they're like, hey, you don't need to bother Jesus now, right? So Jesus though, he overhears. (laughs) He can hear everything. He's got great ears. He hears what they're saying. He recommends a different course of action. The woman was fearful, but acted in faith. Jesus acknowledges Jairus' ongoing fear concerning the possible, and now apparently, final loss of the daughter, but nevertheless, he urges him to believe. All right, he urges him to believe. Jairus just witnessed Jesus heal a woman and call her daughter, and command her faith. Now, Jesus, he, he motivates Jairus to have faith, even though his daughter now is now dead. Even the delay pushes Jairus' faith to the edge. The death of his daughter pushes it over the cliff. Put yourself in his shoes. I mean, you know, when your kids are, are ill, when they're deathly ill, it changes everything in your life. When you're Kids are just, something's going on really bad like this. So he's well over the cliff. Jesus takes with him these three closest associates, right? Peter, James, and John. He's got some things he wants them to learn, to know and understand. At the same time, so there's, there's good lessons here for disciples or followers of Jesus. And by now, you should be able to see yourself in the unclean woman and in Jairus and how it's all connected. And Israel and the future the, uh, uh, church, The church, Christ followers, it's all coming together here. It's pretty crazy. The mourners think that Jesus is a nutcase, right? Because Jesus comes up and he says, hey, why are you carrying on like this? She's not dead. She's just asleep. The mourners are there not because you just hire people, you know, to do this, to make a big scene and all that kind of stuff. Actually, by hiring people to do this, by putting all these people in place so they're just weeping and wailing and all that, it kind of frees you to engage and express your emotion as well, okay, (laughs) without feeling kind of humiliated and all these things, right? So Jesus, you know, he says, hey, she's just asleep. These people think that he's a nutcase and they respond not with faith by ridicule. So what does Jesus do? Ridicule and faith are incompatible. So Jesus literally casts them all out. He does this, you know, before with the demons. He will not allow them to be in the presence of faith. He gets rid of them. And he doesn't allow him to speak. I love that about Jesus. So he does that with these guys. <clears throat> the disciples don't think that you're not right there. You can be there really quickly because the disciples who reacted how when Jesus was looking for someone who touched him and the mourners, you know, they're, they're kind of connected. They're going, hey, this is ridiculous. So the disciples are getting a good lesson here. He enters the house of death and he touches its very soul. He speaks to the girl, commanding her to rise or to get up. Jesus, um, as he told the unclean woman to be healed of your disease, he tells the girl to get up. He restores both the woman and the girl to community. The woman falls before Jesus, the synagogue official Jairus falls before Jesus. Now the little girl rises before him. Jesus' touch, rather than defiling him, raises the girl to life. Once again, it's, a con- it's, it's um, contrary to the Mosaic law. Holiness overcomes unholiness. Earlier, the woman touched Jesus and she was healed. This girl has no ability to touch Jesus, so, she, so Jesus touches her. Look at all these things that are important to know and understand. The unclean woman suffered for 12 years. The girl is 12 years old. The girl, so different from the woman, also represents Israel, which is dead in its sins at this point, in a state of living death, exiled from its God, Go back to Ezekiel chapter 37 and other texts. Israel anticipated being resurrected as God's people. That's what they anticipated. The resurrection of one Israelite who symbolically represents all Israel is a harbinger of things to come. The resurrection of the Son of God. This is big. Which means the renewal of God's people in the present and guarantees the resurrection of God's people into the future. And so often we miss, we don't see this, we don't understand the full power of the resurrection. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in your faith and belief, believing faith in the way, in this good news, in Jesus as Messiah, as Savior. His death, burial, and resurrection paved the way to forgive you from sins past, present, and future. All sin, all of it, past, present, and future. Have you heard me say that before? So that when you confess your sin as a Christ follower, you're not asking for forgiveness. You're you're agreeing with God about the sin, so that you can experience the forgiveness that you own, that you possess, because it's past, present, and future. It doesn't give you license to sin, as some think well <laughs> based on mark's narrative you can use your imaginate your imagination for a minute and picture the father god the father taking the son of god by the hand on the third day and saying to him my son i say to you get up rise the resurrection of the girl signals that God's new creation is, is, is bursting onto the scene in the middle of the old creation. In the presence of Jesus, even death runs, it flees. So Jesus once again commands secrecy, which is, allows him to leave without being crushed by the crowds. That's why he does that. If word gets out that he has authority over death, he's going to get crushed, right? Those with authority in the world, they're going to be alerted to his presence and you know it's not going to go good. So he also tells those nearby to give the girl something to eat before she's inundated. Because people are going to want to know what the heck is going on here. They're going to want to see her. So give her something to eat because she's going to get swarmed. That's all that is. I think it's kind of cool. I think you can all identify with the distraught father. All of us can. Just a little bit... Just as those who suffered silently in isolation might relate to the woman in a special way, those who enjoy some measure of authority in our world. Maybe you identify with Jairus in a special way. You're a ruler, so to speak. You've got some sort of a position. What you say maybe carries weight. You call at least some of the shots in your workplace or in your family or in your community, maybe in your church. You value being appreciated for what you've achieved for being self-sufficient, for being reliable. Can you identify with that? The authority you value most is the authority you have over your own life and woe to anyone who interferes with your right to choose. You despise weakness and vulnerability. Maybe that's you. You're in control or at least you think you are. Then it appears as if you might lose someone or something, maybe something you cherish. A loved one, a relationship, a job, your health, maybe your magic touch, you know, to get things done. Your well-ordered world begins to crumble. You become that which you previously despised. You become weak and vulnerable. Can you identify with that? You recognize maybe for the first time that you're not in control. You might be feeling like that today. You become desperate. You don't care anymore about what people perceive or what it might cost you to deal with this new reality. You need help. But you know that not just anyone can help. You hear that Jesus of Nazareth has helped others. So you come up to him, you fall on your face, you plead with Jesus, and what's he do? He stops to help somebody with a sprained ankle. You got to be kidding me. And my little girl died or whatever I was after, it just dies. You beg, you beg, but, you know, Jesus has raised your hopes and now it's all a mess. You haven't been helped at all. You want him to save something, but he lets that thing just crumble. Crumble. Start, maybe you started thinking, don't, I'm not, forget it, I'm not bothering with Jesus anymore. Then you hear another voice, his voice, don't be afraid, just believe, believe. Believe what? Believe in who? He still wants faith? You've lost everything. He wants faith? Does it sound that ridiculous? No way. I had faith, at least some faith. But he delayed things, he let me down. You know, who does he think he is? What you've lost, he says, is not dead, it's just asleep. (laughs) Wow. In so many ways, the story of the distraught father around the story of the unclean woman are united in the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Can you see that? Mark is telling us that the two people in the narrative, that they belong together. Even though Jairus would otherwise have nothing to do with the woman whose condition excluded her from the synagogue, no way, she wouldn't be allowed in, she can't be near it, and he was a synagogue ruler, so he'd be ensuring that, right? They're brought together in this story first by suffering and then by desperation and finally by faith. Can you see that? Maybe that's you today maybe that's somebody in your life, it's amazing how distress, stress, desperation all bring it all together in faith. It re- does require faith. Their stories have all the earmarks of being made new by faith in Jesus. Being made New. You know, the picture of baptism out there, we speak of it all the time, right? The old things, when you stand in that water, the old things, the old life stands there before Jesus representing the old things and and the way it was done, right? When you're taken down in the water, you identify with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and you're raised to what? A new life. Old things are passed away. All things are new. Made new. Look at this. Made new by faith in Christ. If you identify with a desperate woman in some way, throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Fall on your face at the feet of Jesus. If you identify with a desperate father, throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Maybe you thought the two had nothing in common, but they do. It's pretty powerful. You thought your story had nothing to do with him or, or her. But now you see the stories, they're intertwined. And look how they're intertwined with the church. The two stories have different paths, but the desperation and the faith brought them to the same place, to the ground, just in front of the feet of Jesus. You not only believe in the same Lord, you also belong to the same family, You belong to each other. See how the church works? It's pretty powerful. Would you bow your head with me just for a minute? I wish we could get our arms around this story more and more. I wish everybody, Lord God, could really get their arms around this story. Because these two individuals are a picture of us all. So often we don't see ourselves like this, but this is us. We are in desperate need of you. We are all bleeding in some way. We are all, we've all lost something. Everything that we have crumbles in front of us in our own efforts sometime. We're not, any of us, in control of anything. We're at the mercy of so much stuff. But... Lord God, you made a way for us through Messiah, through Jesus, who calls us daughters. Sons and daughters. Lord God, I pray that all of us would bow before you at the feet of your son, Jesus. Confess we're in desperate need of a savior. Confess our sin so that we can be made new. Maybe you're here today and that's what you're hearing the Holy Spirit of God do by way of knocking on your heart. If that's you, why would you stiff arm God? Why would you do that? If you believe in the truth, it will set you free. I'm telling you, this is truth. This is truth. We just drew it out of God's word, out of the text. Thank you, Lord God, for these stories and how they come together, how miraculous they are how living they are and how powerful they are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.